Colossians chapter 2. That's where we'll be this morning. Moving on in our study of the book of Colossians, we have been several weeks within this, within the first chapter, of course. As we mentioned last week, it was around, uh, we actually were 20 weeks in the first chapter of the book. And now we are moving on this morning to the second chapter. And so I want to begin our reading this morning in chapter 2 and verse 1. And we'll just read through uh, the first few verses of the uh, second chapter, actually verses 1 through 3 together. Paul writes, For I would that ye knew what great conflict I have for you and for them at Laodicea, for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts might be comforted, knit together in love, and unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, we do thank you for the opportunity we have to gather here. And Lord, as we pause these few moments, we ask that you might be glorified and honored as we would study your word, that you would use uh, the word by the working of your spirit in our hearts and in our lives, and Lord, that throughout each and every day that we live, that we would be mindful of the truth that is before us concerning our responsibility and privilege uh, in relation to this mystery of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that you have revealed, that was hidden from ages past and now has been revealed in these times. Lord, we pray that in, in all that is said and done, that your name would be lifted up, and Lord, that your grace and your power might be made known through the revelation of Christ in your word. I pray for every soul that's gathered here today. Lord, we know that it is not by chance that we have met, but providentially you've brought us together, and it is our privilege to gather as we do this day, and we are thankful for that, Lord, and we just pray that in, in all that is done, that it will be to glorify and honor the Lord Jesus Christ and lift up you as our Heavenly Father. Father, that we have a privilege to come to you. We are so grateful for that. And Lord, that you have made us part of your family. And so may we rejoice in that truth as we reflect upon your love and care for us as described and given to us in your word. And Lord, may each of us have lives submitted truly unto worship of you, for you alone are worthy. You alone deserve such, and Lord, there is none other that, to which we should submit ourselves or commit ourselves as we live each day. So Lord, may you find us faithful stewards of the gospel, as was Paul. May we be aware of the privilege and responsibility it is to hold such a mystery that's now revealed in the person of Christ, and that you've given this to our care, to a world that's in desperate need, spiritually blind, dead, lost, and Lord, you've given us the light of the gospel. So we thank you for that. We pray again for every soul gathered here this day. May your word do its work in our hearts as we submit to you, we pray again in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you and be seated. Of course, as I always do, especially beginning another chapter as we continue or another section of the book as we would uh, study the scriptures and in the book of Colossians, this epistle of Paul to the church at Colossae, uh, as I said, we spent 20 weeks in the first chapter of this book studying that, and so I do want to review a few things before we move forward into chapter 2. However, in chapter 2, Paul does not completely shift gears here, and sometimes that is the case, and we need to be mindful of that, to be aware that 
Just because there are chapter divisions within a book, it does not necessarily mean that that is a new division of the letter itself. And so Paul somewhat continues uh, his, his thought throughout chapter 1 into chapter 2, as you'll see in just a few moments, even mentioning again the mystery as we've read this morning uh, in these verses. And we've spent the, the past three weeks examining Paul's explanation in the latter verses of chapter 1, Paul's explanation of the mystery of the gospel to the Gentiles. And let me again remind you of this truth. When we look in Ephesians, Colossians, and other epistles of Paul in which he mentions this mystery, he is not referring to salvation in a general sense, just generally speaking the salvation of God to mankind, but rather specifically as it's stated so clearly, Paul is referencing the gospel to the Gentiles. This is the mystery. This is what was hidden from ages past. As we saw in in previous studies, previous weeks, we looked at some Old Testament passages in which this mystery was declared uh, by the prophets, and then we we saw uh, corresponding verses and passages in the New Testament which referenced those verses and those passages of the prophets in explaining this mystery now as it's been revealed in Jesus Christ. And so the mystery of the gospel of Jesus Christ is the mystery of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, that God would make a people who were not a people his people, that he would redeem the Gentiles, those who had no part in the covenant, those who had no part in the promises, those who had no part in the household of faith, and yet God would would make them part of his family, bringing them into the family of God. This is the mystery, and, and what a mystery it was, and what a mystery it is, but now revealed, as, the Paul, as Paul teaches us in several of his epistles and explains to us. So throughout these past several weeks that we've been concluding chapter 1 of our, of our study, we considered three major truths surrounding this mystery of which we speak. First of all, we began to consider the wonder of the mystery in verse 26 of chapter 1. If you want to turn there and just read with me. Even the mystery, Paul wrote, which hath been hid from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints. Now again, the word mystery as it is used here in this context, it it means something not understood or something beyond understanding. So when the scriptures refer to this mystery, it's not that it was something that was not declared or something withheld from being proclaimed, as we saw throughout the prophets. It was clearly proclaimed. But rather, it is that the people to whom it was proclaimed, they were capable of understanding such a mystery. They heard it. It's like the disciples, if you think for a moment, in Jesus' ministry. Jesus comes and tells them he's going to die. And they're saying, "Uh, no, no, you're not going to die. And they're, no, I'm going to die. I'm going to leave you. You don't need to leave us. That's not good. You're going to set up. He was telling them plainly, I am going to die and I am going to leave you. And they could not understand that. Even though they were hearing the words they, they could not conceive the thought that, that this could be true. And so it's an estimate, the mystery of the gospel to the Gentiles clearly declared, explained, not understood. They could not have eyes to see nor hearts to understand and perceive this truth. Again, referencing Corinthians where Paul writes a verse that is often misunderstood or misquoted or misrepresented, uh, misrepresented I hath not seen, ear hath not heard, Neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. But before it says, I have not seen, as it is written, I have not seen, ear hath not heard. That's Old Testament prophecy, which now Paul is explaining in the book of Corinthians. And he says, as it is written, I have not seen, ear hath not heard. Neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. And again, most people just stop there and think, or, or reference that too. 
okay, heaven's going to be something beyond our imagination, but that's not even what that's talking about. The next verse tells us, but God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit. The things of God, even the deep things of God. What is he talking about? The prophet was saying, oh, you people cannot begin to comprehend the truth of the mystery of the gospel to the Gentiles and the glory of that mystery which is Christ in you, the confidence, the hope of glory. And you hear this and you see this and you read this, but you cannot comprehend this. You don't understand this. And so Paul in Corinthians is saying, I have not seen, referring to what we know, the glory of God the Father in His Son, Jesus Christ, now dwelling in us. This is the mystery of the gospel to the Gentiles. And so we see the wonder of that mystery. It was something not understood, something beyond understanding. It had not been withheld from the people of the Old Testament. It was not withheld from generations past, but it was hidden from them. Not meaning it wasn't declared, but they could not see it. They weren't able to understand it. And so it was something that to them was just foreign, even though they heard the words and read them and heard the prophets. Second, we looked at the glory of the mystery. In verse 27 of chapter 1, Paul goes on to say, To whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. This is the glory of this mystery. The mystery is that God not only would reveal the gospel to the Gentiles, but even what's more is that God would reveal the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. It's not just declared to them, it is demonstrated and revealed among them in that there are Gentiles that are being redeemed. Paul clearly declared as well what the riches of the glory of this mystery is in verse 27, which we read, the glory of this mystery which is Christ in you. Who is Paul speaking to? He's speaking to the Colossians. Who are the Colossians? These are Gentile believers. And he's saying, the beauty of this mystery I declare is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And again, the word glory. We often look at this noun glory and immediately we think of what? One word. Heaven. Exactly. Do you know there's much more to glory than a place called heaven itself? The glory of God is seen in the face of Jesus. Does the scripture not tell us that? The law came by Moses, but grace and truth by Jesus Christ. God's glory is revealed in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus. And so Christ in you, the confidence of glory, not just the assurance that one day I will be with the Lord in heaven, though that is true, that's part of it. But again, I say to you, heaven is not something you dream it up to be. The very person, the very glory of the place itself is the Lord Jesus Christ. The light is the lamp. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. All throughout the book of Revelation, in all 22 chapters, you find 29 times, I believe it is, that the, the title and name or word lamb is used in describing the Lord Jesus Christ. The point being that it's never, even, even the scripture's description of heaven for us, the emphasis is never about the place, it's always about the person of the place, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. So again, if you don't find Christ in you to be glorious, then you will not find it glorious to be in heaven with him. The fact of the matter is the glory of this redemption is not just the end. It is the entire journey of knowing Christ and knowing the Father and, and understanding him as he has revealed his Son in his word. Third, we looked last week at the stewardship of the mystery, verses 28 and 29. Whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus, whereunto I also labor, striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily. We saw last week that Paul's commitment is, is declared 
to his part in the revelation of this mystery, and it was an unparalleled commitment. Paul desired that Christ be revealed in every man. And again, we see each area of Paul's commitment regarding his statement of the mystery of the gospel to every man is significant in its own specific manner. We saw last week, and I believe this is very important because we speak of the gospel, and people immediately go to to Corinthians where Paul is rebuking, 1 Corinthians, Paul is rebuking this church for their carnality. He is rebuking them because they are not mature in the faith, because they are not spiritually rooted and grounded. He goes on to say, for I determined to know nothing among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And again, many times that verse is viewed as though Paul is saying, oh, I only preach Christ to you. Paul always only preached Christ. That's not what he is saying. He's saying, I could only deal with the rudimentary truths of salvation to you because chapter 3, the next chapter, Paul says, you're babes. You should be eating meat and you're drinking milk. I'm having to to bottle feed you. Hence, I can only declare the, the primary truth of salvation to you when you should be realizing and understanding the depths of the person of the revealed Christ. And so he is saying to them, you're, you're, you're carnal, you're immature. And people will go to that passage of 1 Corinthians and then say, well, the gospel's defined the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ because Paul goes on to talk about that. And that is the gospel in a nutshell, but remember the word gospel is good news. And the good news is more than, than this truth alone that Jesus came, Jesus died, Jesus rose again. Now, that's wonderful news, but let me say to you, the news of Christ, the good news of Christ is throughout the scriptures, and we are continually learning of him and the goodness of God in Christ. We are continually uh, learning of the truth of his beauty and his glory. All of this is good news. It's not just, I'm saved, going to heaven, that's it. Look, that is just the beginning. Now, think of your children for a moment. Let me just give you this analogy. If you think about, if you have children... How many of you have children? How many are you glad you have children? <laughs> I saw a few hands drop. No. So you have children, right? And, and did you rejoice at the time of their birth? Wasn't that amazing? I remember my own children being born, and, and you're, you're holding your child for the first time, scared you're going to break them, especially as a man. You're, I remember cradling and, like, scared to death. Then I watched the nurse grab them and pull them around. I said, oh, okay, I can do that too then. <laughs> but I remember that holding, holding my children, you know, and holding the first time and just that joy and amazement, but that was just the beginning. That, that wasn't the end of our relationship. That wasn't, that's not even the height of our relationship. That's not even the, their birth. I remember that. That's when I think of my children. That's not the first thing I think of is the moment they were born. I think about my interaction with them. I think about their maturity or sometimes lack thereof. I think about, about their growth. I think about who they are as individuals or my relationship to them and with them. Not merely, oh, I remember when they were born and that was it. But think about how people view the gospel. That's how they view it. Salvation spiritually is, oh, there's this new birth. That person's born again. Then off they go, right? No. In fact, if that's all you have is a birth certificate and there's nothing more than that, then is there even really life present? And so it's important to to consider this fact as, as, as Paul embraces his stewardship of the gospel. He speaks of this going to every man and how it is significant and he took this seriously, and he understood the gospel is not just in a nut, it is in a nutshell the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, but it is much more than that alone. And the same is true in this passage, and I don't want to belabor the point, we were here last week, but I do want to mention this briefly so we can move on. Paul says, 
His stewardship, he's dealing with the stewardship, his stewardship of the gospel, the mystery of the gospel to the Gentiles, and he mentions three specific things which he connects with this term, of course, every man. And he says, first of all, his stewardship was to warn every man. And I told you last week, the verb warn means to admonish. To admonish is to firmly reprimand. So as I've said many times, the gospel, the good news, is preceded by very bad news. The reprimand, the warning, the heralding out of this truth is not just Jesus saves or God loves you. That is not the gospel. The gospel is preceded, the good news is preceded by bad news, else the good news is never viewed as truly being good news because it's good for someone else, but I don't need it. It's not good for me. And so we understand the bad news. The warning comes before even the teaching and instructing because the warning is that men under the wrath and condemnation of a holy God apart from Jesus Christ. There it is. No hope, no help, nothing you can do to help. And the gospel is offensive, and Jesus is offensive. He himself is the rock of offense. And the reason he is offensive, and, and again, let me pause, digress for one moment. The, the, the tragedy is that today people, the church, so-called, has attempted to bring a gospel that is non-offensive. Listen, the gospel is offensive when it's truthfully declared. And here's why. Because the first news of the gospel isn't God loves you, he cares about you, he wants your life to be great. No. The gospel is you are born inherently wicked and sinful under the wrath and condemnation of a holy God. And here's the There's absolutely nothing you can do to fix that. And that offends me. Because I think I can fix myself, right? You can fix yourself. No, you can't. And so the gospel is offensive. And it's preceded with this bad news of the truth of where we are. But then there's this good news, of course. And Paul says he warned every man. Then he said in verse 28, then he said, teach every man. And the verb teach is to instruct. So teaching was every man was not Paul telling men how they could better themselves, but rather it was commanding men to obey and to respond properly to the gospel. Again, twice at least in Scripture we're told that men have not obeyed the gospel or they were disobedient to the gospel. And again, that sounds odd. Think of a... The gospel is something you obey. Of course it is. Because what is the gospel teaching? The instruction of the gospel, you can't help yourself. You must trust and rest solely in the person of Jesus Christ, God's all-sufficient provision for the condition you find yourself to redeem you. He's the only one who can do this. And you must rest and trust in obedience to the gospel. Then third, Paul says, present every man perfect. The verb present means to be present and to stand, and the adjective perfect means mature. So Paul was committed to teach or to disciple all those who had come to faith in Jesus Christ through his ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Notice, the gospel and evangelism is not simply telling somebody God loves you. It is first warning them of the condition they are in and uh, and the wrath they are under, teaching them of God's perfect, all-sufficient provision for them in Jesus Christ. And it doesn't even end then, in there. Then it is maturing them in the faith through teaching them continually, discipling them. So just as I said a moment ago, the gospel in a nutshell is death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. But there's much more to it than that alone. So it is as well. Evangelism and stewardship of the mystery of the gospel to the Gentiles, though it is declaring that Jesus saves, it is much more than that alone. It is warning it is teaching of God's provision, and then it is continually discipling that men might be presented mature in the faith. And that's what Paul states here. So within this, these, uh, the first verse 
verses of this second chapter of Colossians, which we look at now this morning, Paul continues to expound on his stewardship of this mystery of the gospel. And within this portion of his letter, Paul explains his great desire, his great passion for all believers, and specifically for those, uh, to those he had not had the opportunity to personally minister, as he mentions in the first verse, that they might understand he has a passion and desire for them to understand the treasures of this mystery which has now been manifested in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So look with me first of all. Paul, we see in verse 1, was concerned that men may neglect the treasures of the mystery. By the way, I think this is vastly what has taken place within the modern day church. Men hear, again, this watered-down version of the gospel, or they hear, uh, they hear preaching that is so subjectively geared and focused on them and their felt needs and what they think can help better lives that are within the congregations. And there is a neglect of the treasures of this mystery. There, there's just a dismissal of it, an ignorance of it altogether. And Paul was fearful of that when he says, Verse 1, for I would that ye knew what great conflict I have for you and for them at Laodicea and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. Paul had in chapter 1, he was committed to make known the mystery of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul expressed this commitment in verse 28, which we just referenced a moment ago, when he spoke of this desire that every man be warned, every man be taught, be redeemed, and every man be discipled are presented perfect or mature in Christ. Paul concluded this epistle confirming his desire to continue to proclaim the gospel to the gospel at all costs. If you look at Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 4, and concluding the, cha- the, the letter, Paul says, not the last verses, but in the last chapter, he says, continue in prayer and watch in the same with thanksgiving, with all praying also for us, that God would open unto us a door of utterance to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am also in bonds. Notice that, the mystery of Christ. May God continue to grant utterance. May he continue to open the doors. You pray that God will make the doors evidently open before me, that I may continue to declare the truth of the mystery of Christ, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, the mystery of this gospel. He says, for which I now am in bonds. I'm in prison for this. Pray that God will continue to open the doors that I may continue to proclaim this truth for which I am suffering and, rela- and identifying in the sufferings of Christ which are apportioned to me. As we saw in the previous chapter, chapter 1, where Paul identified with personal sufferings for the cause of Christ, which God had ordained that he would suffer. Acts chapter 9 tells us that. So Paul says then, verse 4 of chapter 4, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. Oh, may God open the doors for me to speak the gospel, to utter the truth of the mystery of Christ, even though it is for this very reason I am in bonds. However, I previously explained within our study of the first chapter to you, it is believed, and for good reason, that Gnosticism, as we've mentioned, was growing within the region and specifically had affected both the church at Colossae and Laodicea, which would explain why Paul specifically mentioned these two churches in this verse, in verse 1 of chapter 2. This problem was not limited to these churches alone, but was also continuing to spread, as indicated by Paul's mention of Eropolis in his closing remarks in this epistle, in which Paul wrote in chapter 4, verses 12 through 13, the last chapter again. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ, saluteth you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers, 
that ye may stand perfect and complete in the will of God. Notice what Paul says, that Epaphras was praying the same thing, had the same passion and desire for these believers at Colossae as well, that they might be mature in the faith, that they might be complete in the will of God. Verse 13, Paul says, chapter 4 of Colossians, For I bear him record, Epaphras, that he hath a great zeal for you, and them that are in Laodicea, and them in Eropolis. So Paul explained that Epaphras had a zeal, that these believers stand mature and complete in God's will, which would only be a reality as they embrace the revealed mystery of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is Christ in you. They begin to understand the treasures of this mystery. We'll see that in a moment. Nonetheless, within this first verse of chapter 2, even though Eropolis is mentioned in chapter 4, included with the church at Colossae and the church at Laodicea, in chapter 2, verse 1, Paul affirms his commitment to make known this mystery to the church at Colossae. Notice what he says in verse 1. For I would that ye knew. Paul's personal interest and investment was due to the stewardship of the gospel to which he, had, to which he was called. Paul explained that this was a passion and a zeal that far exceeded their ability to understand, as indicated in this statement he makes in verse 1. He says again, For I would that ye knew. What he is actually saying is, you have no understanding. You're not able to comprehend and understand the depths of my desire and my conflict, my struggle to make certain that you know the truth of the mystery of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That I am willing to embrace the bonds. I am willing to suffer greatly. I am willing to sacrifice all that you might know the mystery of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That you might know the depths of the truth of who Jesus is. That you might understand after salvation how you are to be mature in the faith and in the knowledge of he who has redeemed you. Paul is saying, my conflict, my struggle is great for you. And you're not... And remember something, Paul had never met these people. He had never seen them face to face. And again, his commitment then is not to the people. His commitment is to the stewardship of the gospel to which God had called him. You know, it very well could be that Paul might have met some of these people in time and not like them. I mean, let's just be honest. Are there not people that you like and don't like? And it may be that Paul is saying, well, I really don't like these people. That's irrelevant. He's not committed to the people. He's committed to the stewardship of the gospel. It's not about the people. It's about Christ being made known to the people. He goes on to say, verse 1, What great conflict I have for you and for them at Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. Although Paul had never met these believers, he had a passion and zeal for them to know and continue to grow in the mystery of Christ nonetheless. The noun conflict means struggle and fight. Paul literally was struggling or fighting on behalf of the gospel as he was in prison while writing this epistle. It's been well stated that some of the most liberating truths, some of the most liberating truths, were declared by Paul while he was imprisoned. Think about it. Paul's in bonds in prison and he's preaching of the freedom and liberty and truth of Christ and this, the liberating truths of Christ. The reason Paul suffered at such great extent was due to his relentless commitment to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And more specifically, his relentless commitment to proclaim the mystery of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, as he continues to mention throughout this text. We find in verse 4, which we're not really going to get here this morning, but I do want to bring this into light 
in relation to what we've already seen so, so far concerning uh, the fact that Paul was fearful, if you will, or had a concern that they would neglect the treasures of this mystery of Christ, of the gospel of Jesus. In verse 4, notice what he says. This kind of summarizes it for us. And this I say, he said, I say all this, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words. What is he talking about? He's saying, lest you be persuaded by all the Gnostics that are present that Jesus did not come in the flesh, that he is not the Son of God, or you be distracted from the truth of the preeminence of Jesus Christ. Because remember, Colossians 1 is all about what? The preeminent Christ. And so he's saying that you be distracted from the preeminence of Jesus Christ. So Paul warned that there were those who would attempt to persuade these believers from their commitment to the gospel of Jesus Christ. By the way, that is constantly present even among us. There are always those who are wanting to distract us from the sufficiency of Christ. Listen, you know what? I'll be honest with you. I'm just going to say it because it's the truth. That goes on probably most prominently within pulpits. Men are persuading, and I mean, I don't mean unbelievers, I mean people who just do not, who have, okay, to go back to the, the first point here, people, even pastors, even preachers or teachers, who have neglected the treasures of Christ within this mystery of the gospel. And again, if you're not focused on Jesus, literally, not just giving him lip service, if you're not seeing that this book is all about him, period, it has nothing to do with you, it's all about him. And if you don't understand and see that, then you will easily be persuaded to overlook him or to, mis, to misdirect your focus from him. And that takes place all the time from pulpits, constantly. And so there's this constant danger of being persuaded from the gospel, from our focus and our attention being turned from Jesus to something else, even what we might call or what Scripture might even refer to being good things. But if we are misdirected and our focus is turned from Christ, then we've missed everything. I say to you, as I've said many times before, we can understand many truths of Scripture while missing the truth the entire time. What is the truth? Christ is the way, the truth, the life. And if you've missed him, then you've missed it all, period. Second, we see Paul desired in verses 2 and 3 for men to experience the treasures of this mystery. He says, do not neglect, do not neglect. And at verse 4, again, I'm fearful that there are those who will come and persuade you. Do not be enticed by their, by their persuading words and speech. Then he says in verse 2 that their hearts, now here's his desire, he has a great conflict for them, even those he's never met in the flesh. He says, I have a great conflict and struggle. I'm in bonds for their sake. On their behalf, for the uh, purpose of the gospel, I am in bonds. I'm in prison. And he says, this is my passion and desire, that they experience these treasures of the mystery of Christ. Their, their hearts might, verse 2, that their hearts might be comforted, being knit together in love, and unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God. Here it is. For the sake of understanding, the acknowledgement, understanding the mystery of God, and of the Father, and of Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Within this verse, Paul explains the benefits of acknowledging this mystery. Whenever men recognize and embrace the truth of this revealed mystery of the gospel of Jesus Christ, it will be manifested in several ways, not only within one's own personal life as a believer, but also within the life of the church body as a whole. 
explain where these treasures are found in verse 3. Let me skip ahead a little bit. Look again at verse 3. In whom? God the Father and Christ, specifically Christ, by God the Father's will, are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now let me ask you something. Does that mean that it's in Christ that all these things are kept from us? No, it's in Christ that all of these things are found. It's in Christ that all these truths are discovered. And just like the Old Testament, it was hidden from them. Here you have the clear declaration, I'm going to make a people which were not a people my people. Clearly declared in Old Testament. And again, it's hidden from them. Even though it's declared, proclaimed, they don't see it. Do you understand how many people fail to see the treasures that are in Christ? What does Ephesians 3 say? Which surely is a sister book to Colossians without question. And Ephesians chapter 3, what does it say? Chapter 3, blessed be the God and Father... I'm sorry, chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Where are the spiritual blessings? In Christ. Let me show you practically how this is so overlooked and neglected. The treasures in Christ are neglected. The treasures of the mystery are neglected. People are looking everywhere other than the scriptures where Christ is revealed for all kinds of blessings, all kinds of help, all kinds of hope, all kinds of encouragement, all kinds of comfort. Hear me, the only place you will find peace with God, comfort from God, and the riches of God are in the person of Jesus Christ. And guess where you find Jesus? Not in your prayer closet, not in your bowl of cereal, that an outline that looks like him. No, you find him in his word. As he is revealed. And look, listen closely. We are guilty of neglecting the treasures of Christ because we neglect his word. We neglect his word. When I say neglect his word, oh, you may carry it with you. You may open it up and read it. Look, reading the scriptures is not all there is to it. You are to be a student of God's word. And when you refuse to be a student of God's word, you are neglecting the treasures of Christ which have been given to you by God the Father. And Paul is saying, do not neglect this. Do not be persuaded. And listen, I mean, this is so fitting to today. It's a different time. It's a different culture. I understand all of that. But it's the same problem. Men, again, even from pulpits, are turning people's attention away from Jesus. Even if they turn them to the Scriptures, they're failing to help them to see it as Christ that is revealed in the Scriptures. I pause with intent. People talk about how much they need the Bible, the Word of God. They talk about how much they need wisdom. They talk about how much they need guidance. They talk about how much they need help. And yet, they avoid and ignore all of that that's already been given in Christ, looking for it elsewhere. Again, I, I, I always am reminded of this passage in John uh, chapter 14. And you, you know the verses um, where Jesus is saying, um, and let me give you the proper context here so you remember because it is important. Chapter 13, again, is, this is a perfect example of what I mentioned a moment ago about chapter divisions. Chapter 13 and chapter 14 are not two different discourses. In chapter 13 of John, Jesus, Peter is talking, he's washed his disciples' feet and, and then Peter is there talking. He says, Lord, I'm going to follow you wherever you go. And he says, Peter, you, you cannot follow me. He says, 
oh, Lord, no, I'm going to follow you even to the death. And Jesus says, Peter, he says, uh, before the cock crow, you'll deny me thrice. You'll deny me three times. And the next words from our Savior in chapter 14, verse 1 is this, to Peter, let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come in again and receive you unto himself, that where I am, there you may be also. Again, it's not about the place, it's about being with him. There's another passage to show you that. Then he says, Philip says, Lord, show us the way. You know, what, what is this way? And he says, Philip. Or he says, Philip says to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. Remember when he makes that statement in, in chapter 14 there? He says, show us the Father and it sufficeth us. And here's what Philip's saying. Jesus had just said to Peter after he said, you're going to deny me, but let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe in me. I can't believe in you, Peter. I can't trust your word, but you can trust me and trust mine. And then he says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. I will receive you unto myself that you'll be with me throughout eternity. And then Philip's like, Lord, show us the Father and it sufficeth us. Here Philip is saying, if you show us the Father, we'll be satisfied. I, I, I mean, you've got to honestly kind of picture and see the Lord saying, Really, Philip? Because that's kind of what he says here. He says, Philip, really? He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. How long have I been with you, Philip? Do you not know me? And the fact of the matter is that Philip is saying, this is great, Jesus, but just we want something, we want something more. And the fact of the matter is people are always looking for something other than Christ in whom God has revealed who he is. And it's very glorious truth. So, in whom God the Father has revealed in Christ are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So Paul's statement concerning the treasure of wisdom and knowledge is not referring to worldly wisdom or man's knowledge, but spiritual wisdom and knowledge as manifested in Jesus Christ. Such wisdom and knowledge, which have been hid from ages past, is now manifested and revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ as he was sent by God the Father. Again, did Colossians 1 not tell us, did Paul not tell us that Christ is the very image of the invisible God? He is the fullness of the Godhead bodily. In Christ is the fullness of the God of glory, the fullness of the blessings of the Father, the fullness of the glory of the Father, the fullness of the grace of the Father, the fullness of the truth of the Father. Christ is all of this and yet here people neglect the treasures that are in Christ looking elsewhere for them. How foolish. Do you, do you understand how foolish this is? Do you understand how, how erroneous it is for someone to have everything right here given to them in the person of Christ and told that they are given all of this in Christ and yet neglect Christ to go look elsewhere? And I'm talking about believers. I'm not talking about unbelievers. I mean believers. And Paul is talking to believers and saying, do not let someone else persuade you from the beauty and the truth and the treasures that are in Jesus Christ, as God has ordained them to be. The benefits of understanding these treasures of wisdom and knowledge includes the truths Paul stated in verse 2. So let's go back there and I'll be finished briefly, because we cannot overlook this. So what are these treasures of knowledge and wisdom and, and the full assurance of, of all of this as Paul states? Well, first of all, he says, comforted hearts. Notice what he says in verse 2. That their hearts might be comforted. What do you mean that their hearts might be comforted? Well, I have great conflict in explaining and proclaiming to you this Jesus in whom are hid all the treasures of God. All spiritual blessings. And he says that your hearts might be comforted. How are our hearts comforted when we understand, embrace, and rest in the truth 
of God's provision in Christ. In 2 Corinthians 1, 3-5, again, let me give you a little bit of context, because chapter 1 is the letter of rebuke, chapter 2 now Paul begins to comfort the Corinthian church because, as he goes on to say in the book, in the letter, the church at Corinth had now repented. Now, again, I don't believe the church at Corinth ever reached the point of spiritual maturity in time as they lived in this life, as did the Ephesian church or the church at Ephesus as they just demonstrated that in the letter Paul wrote to them. And that, let me give you an example of what I mean by that. I said this in our study of Ephesians and Corinthians, I think both, but back in Ephesians for certain. Compare 1 Corinthians chapter 1, chapters 1 through 3 with Ephesians chapters 1 through 3 and you will see a vast difference of how Paul approaches these believers. He dives right into the truths of Christ in chapters 1 through 3 of the book of Ephesians while he's dealing with the carnality of the Corinthians in chapters 1 through 3 of Corinthians. And so you see such a vast difference. And yet in chapter or in his second epistle, or what we know as 2 Corinthians, we understand that Paul then begins to comfort these believers at Corinth. Why? Because they have repented with godly sorrow, he says. They have turned and they are now identifying in the sufferings of Christ. Before, they were only living out their carnality, which God would not allow to be as his people, so he corrects them through the letter of Paul. And they are rebuked, and they are corrected, and they respond to that correction because of the Spirit of God dwelling in them. Now, in 2 Corinthians, what we know as 2 Corinthians, we see that now Paul is saying that I'm going to comfort you because now you are identifying in the sufferings of Christ. Because you've repented, now your life is being lived after righteousness, which brings on you persecution. So here's the comfort he provides. Chapter 1, verses 3 through 5 of 2 Corinthians. Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforteth us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also aboundeth by Christ. Here he's saying, you now have identified in the sufferings of Christ. You are in trouble because of the gospel. And now God is comforting you. And he's using me partly to do that for you because I've received this comfort as one who's identified in his sufferings. Amid tribulation and persecution for the cause of Christ, it is God who is our comfort. Why? Listen, honestly, why would we look anywhere else for comfort other than the Lord? Why would we do that? These are part of the treasures of Christ. God has reconciled us by the blood of the cross of Christ to himself. He has removed the hostility out that existed between us and God the Father. It is now removed. What more comfort could you possibly need than to know, regardless of all the turmoil that may be going on around in this life, there is nothing between my Heavenly Father and me that hinders me from fellowship and relationship with him because of his Son. That's comfort. That's comfort beyond feeling better about a situation. That is comfort that is eternal. He says, second, here's some of these treasures. We are united in love. Paul further expounds on this unity provided by God in verse 19. But look again at verse 2. That their hearts might be comforted being knit together in love. Colossians 2.19, Paul goes on to say, And not holding the head, being Christ, from which all the body by joints and bands having nourishment ministered and knit together increaseth with the increase of God. Here he's talking about the body of Christ under the headship of Christ being ministering to itself and being ministered to one by another under the head and submission to the head which brings comfort and unity within the body. 
And then third, he speaks of confidence in our understanding. He says in verse 2, that their hearts might be comforted, being knit together in love, and all riches of the full assurance of understanding to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ. When Isaiah prophesied of Jesus and the Spirit of the Lord being upon him, he described the Spirit of the Lord as, listen to how Isaiah describes him, Isaiah eleven two, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, Jesus, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. He's saying this is what would be manifested in the physical flesh body of our Lord Jesus. Because he speaks about the root of Jesse in the previous verse of Isaiah. As we grow in Christ, we grow in the benefits of all it is to know Him. It is in Christ that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are discovered. For it is through Jesus alone that we are granted access to God the Father. We are granted a relationship with God the Father. And we are restored to fellowship with God the Father. It is in Christ and Christ alone. Listen, let me just encourage you with this. When you go to open the Word of God and read it, quit thinking, saying, and coming to it as though, how can this help me today? Your question should be, how is Jesus revealed here? Because let me remind you of something. You will receive no greater help than when you see him. Period. You know, as a young man and as a pastor, I always desired to proclaim the truth of God's word. Always. I always desired to be able to take the scriptures and and exegete them. Though I didn't even fully understand what that meant, that was still within me. That was my desire to do so. To take the word of God, to draw from it, not try to add to it, but allow it to speak. And I remember the day that God brought me to the place to understand that when I approach Scripture, even preparing to preach, to teach, to study myself, that I should no longer approach Scripture with this idea of what truth can I get out of here today that's really going to change people's lives? What truth of God's Word? Not me, but what truth can I draw? What account is there in Scripture that is so power-packed that it's going to just you know, rock the world of those who hear? When God brought me to understand that that is not at all my responsibility, but here is what I should do. I should approach the Scriptures and say, how is Jesus revealed in this text? And you know what I have found? And it's been years now. I mean many years. Probably 10, 12, maybe more now. 15. Since that day happened and took place where God brought me to that understanding. And when He brought me to that understanding, my whole thought process changed totally concerning my communication of God's Word, my study of God's Word, even my reading of God's Word. And I began to realize more than I ever had before how that the Scriptures, again, have nothing to do with me and nothing to do with you and everything to do with Jesus. And that you don't need me to take Scripture and try to... You need to see Jesus from the Scriptures. And you need to see he who is all-sufficient. And here's what happened. When we have that proper understanding in view, I have found there's never been one time I've approached Scripture and been disappointed. Because as I study, you know what I constantly see? The revealed Christ. He is everywhere. Everywhere. And in him are hid all the treasures of knowledge and wisdom. Is it not in Corinthians that Paul says, for he hath... He, the Father, hath made him, Jesus, to be 
sanct- unto us. He made him unto us wisdom, sanctification, redemption. He has made him all of this to us. It's not that Jesus gives me redemption. It's not that Jesus makes me sanctified. It's not that Jesus justifies me. No, he is my redemption. He is my sanctification. He is my justification. He is my wisdom. I don't just get wisdom from him. He is the wisdom of God to us. So may we be diligent to discover, not neglect the treasures of the mystery of the gospel, but may we be diligent to discover that which is hidden in Christ, that is found in him, him alone. Stand with me in prayer. Father.